then we're going to learn a lot about the end of Paul's life. I'm going to be honest, I got to spend more time, I think, really contemplating where the condition of Christianity was at the time that Paul was about to leave. Uh, and I think probably because I've never been in a season where I've actually kind of gone, wow, you know, what have we set our hands to? And where, what is its state right now? And uh, like, and I'll be honest, it's, it's actually quite startling. It is actually very startling. And I just wanted to point that out. And we'll read through it. To be honest, the book itself, in its simplest sense, he's writing to a very frightened young man. A young, <laughs> probably in his mid to late 30s. That's young, isn't it, sweetheart? And, uh, and he has, um, and the, kid, the kid's freaked out. He's, he's really scared. And he's gotten to the point where, and Paul's had to do this throughout his ministry, tell people like Archippus, well, you just tell Archippus and get busy doing what God called you to do. And uh, that's where the situation is with Timothy. The difference, though, is it sounds like when Paul speaks about Archippus, he's, it's almost as, I mean, you can read into it because it's, it's just fewer words, but there's probably a lot more of this, get off your butt and do it. But when he speaks to Timothy, there's a tenderness there because he recognizes the guy's really scared, and he wants to be able to address this guy and to be able to tell him, hey, can I remind you where you came from, your mother and your grandmother? And, the, and remember in First Timothy, because he had done the same thing there to some degree, he had um, he said, you know, you remember, we all acknowledge this calling on your life. The elders laid hands on you. These people prophesied. I mean, do you, you remember the big to-do that was all about you, Tim, and what God has called you to, and how clearly people saw your calling? Uh, it's, as, it's as if Paul were to look and say in the first letter, Timothy, don't you think it's a little silly you're doubting your calling? Because everybody else seems to notice it. But now, um, Paul's at a place where, and we'll, we'll set that setting, but he's in a place where he's writing Timothy, and he's like, I think the difference here is it's more like, Timothy, I need, I need you to do this now. I really, I need you to do this. So pray with me, and we'll jump in. Um, Lord, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to spend time in your word and to seek you and we just want to understand your word better and each week we got another book to chip off and we don't want it to be a box to tick we really want it to be something beautiful and rich and meaningful and and lord we want to be able to understand you better and and here to understand the the blessing and the challenges that come with serving you and uh, how we can toughen up where we need to and how do we can be tender where we need to be as well. So help us to understand, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true as I say so. Search the scriptures. If you went to a doctor today... And you actually believed he knew what he was talking about. And we have to put that variable in. And he said, you have a week to live. What would you do in that week? I mean, obviously in the beginning of it all, there would be that kind of freaking out about, 
oh my goodness, what does that mean? How does that relate to the people I love? Uh, but, I mean, if you had a week, you'd probably have enough time to start reviewing a lot of things like, what has my life am- amounted to up to this point? That kind of thing. I mean, I have this privilege of being able to speak with a man um, who is dying of Kennedy's. Kennedy's disease means your muscles start to atrophy in your body. They get smaller and they get smaller. And uh, <clears throat> he will ultimately get to the point where the muscles in his throat will atrophy and he'll no longer be able to swallow. He'll wind up, most of the people who have Kennedy's die from choking to death, from being unable to swallow. That's about as worse a way as I can think to die when it comes to something like that. But he's just so other-centered. And he is so... He's, I mean, he's like, let's Skype. I want to find out how you're doing. <laughs> i thinking, me? I want to find out how you're doing. I mean, and his father just had a stroke, and they have a feeding tube down his throat, and I wonder what that would be like, and his wife's in a horrible place. Well, you can close that, Hugo, unless you're using it. I mean, unless it makes it better on you. Um, <clears throat> but I just wanted to point out, because we read the book of Acts, and of course, half of the books of the New Testament, in essence, um, are written by Paul. And... Uh, I mean, that says an awful lot. Uh, 27 letters, 13 of them, you could say, were written by Paul. The, and we kind of, uh, sometimes I need a broad scale understanding of what his life was like. And, and so consider this. Because the term that is used when Stephen, this, the mur- martyr, was killed, was that he was a young Pharisee. And these have to be approximate dates, if that makes sense. He was basically born in an age so that whatever the year is A.D. was roughly his age. In other words, at 10 A.D., he was probably roughly 10 years old. So, at 20 A.D., he was roughly how old? 20. At 25 A.D., he was roughly 25. At 30 A.D., he was roughly 30. So at 34 A.D., when he gets saved, he's roughly 34 years old. Now, I'd like you to consider that. I look around the room, and I'm thinking, Daniel clearly got saved before he was 34. Daniel, I think, was born with a Bible. It's kind of a really strange thing. Hugo, you got saved before you were 34, because you aren't even 34 yet. Deb, Suti, you as well, right? So, Fiona? Sure. So you were probably before 34. Yeah. Yeah. That means that everyone in this room has said yes to Jesus younger than Paul did. That's a good place to start. Now, 34, he tries out that old way of doing things with this new Jesus thing, and it doesn't work out so well. They ultimately ship him back to where he came from in Tarshish. And he'll basically live a life of obscurity for nearly eight, to eight years to a decade. So consider the fact that Paul, because he hasn't read the book of Acts, because it isn't being read, written yet, he's trying to live a normal life. I mean, and what would that be here? He works at an MLT, he's flipping burgers, he works in a music store. He's selling, you know, he's helping people with realty. He's, I mean, in Paul's case, he was a tent maker. He learned how to be a tent maker. He had to, he had to do something that was just simply going to pay the bills. And again, 
this man who has this fantastic calling on his life, how does he know it? All he knows is that he tried this thing and it failed. That's the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of his ministry was all excitement, and everyone wants to kill him, but he's all about arguing and debating, and nobody's getting saved from it. And that really kind of doesn't really, um, much doesn't really happen, to be honest, until he's sought for, because a new church is, is birthed in 200 miles north of Jerusalem in a place called Antioch in Syria. And as this church is, um, is born, people in Jerusalem have to go up to validate it. You know, Jerusalem's come, become like headquarters. So if something happens, they have to send someone up there to make sure it's for real. And they send up Barnabas. And Barnabas goes up there, and he looks, and he sees this thing, and he's like, this is for reals. He goes, but you know what they don't have is a decent Bible teacher. They don't have a good pastor here. I know a guy. And what a risk. I mean, he hasn't seen him in nearly a decade. And he's got to go find this guy on the southeast corner of Turkey to be able to pull him down and say, I really think you should be this guy's pa- their pastor. How crazy is that? Do you realize how bizarre of a thought that is? And he brings this guy down. The church, by the way, was started by people who fled the persecution in Jerusalem. Do you know who was the, the, in front of all the persecution in Jerusalem? This guy, Paul, before he got saved. So imagine, he shows up at church, and most of the people there moved there because they were trying to escape him, and now he's become their pastor. How weird is that? And that is roughly about 46 AD. And he pastors for a year. Now, in 46 AD, how old is Paul? Roughly 46. Consider the fact that Paul didn't even start really pastoring until he was roughly 45, 46 years old. In this room, only two of us qualify for that age. Only two, by the way. That's a wild thought. Now, I'm assuming, bro, you're not that old. I'm learning. Good cream, good cream. Yeah, I'm telling you. Well, I don't know, man. Fiona start told us, and I was like, nope. Anyway, yeah. We never tell a girl's age. Um, and so he doesn't actually, and then, he, so he pastors there a year. But in that year as well, God has other people there. Because God never pulls a pastor out of a place without making sure somebody there is going to take care of it when he's gone. I mean, that is, at least in my opinion, that is clear in Scripture. Just the same. Um, when Paul leaves, there are other people doing the work. And Paul begins a ministry. The Holy Spirit says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for a new work. For something I've said, something I've, and the Holy Spirit's saying this. So they start going on the mission field. They start going on the mission field in roughly 47 AD. Now, in roughly 47 AD, how old is Paul? He's 47. And, and imagine this. He doesn't hit the mission field until he's 47. And might I say... He hit the mission field later than we hit the mission field, if we think about it. You know, I mean, that's crazy, and that's where he starts it. Now, he'll do a mission trip, travel roughly 1,400 miles for the next couple years, come back, do another mission trip. Now, for Paul, it wasn't called a mission trip, it was just life. He went, did this circuit, came back, went back to the, the church he was pastoring, Antioch in Syria, then he went, went on a second one. On his second trip, he winds up in Corinth, and he spends a year and a half there. And then he comes back, and he does his third trip. By the way, he went from 1,400 the first time to 2,800 the second time. 
The third time, somewhere between 29 and 3,000 miles, each one gets a little longer. And on the third one, he spends nearly three, well, he spends at least three years in Ephesus. Between Ephesus and Corinth, he will, he will spend then basically about five years by the time he's done with his revisits. Now, the reason I say that is that Paul will, in essence, have left for the mission field in 47 AD, and he will get arrested in roughly 57 AD. Simple math here. Hear this. He leaves in roughly 47 AD. He is arrested in roughly 57 AD. How many years was he out on the mission field? Ten years. Do you realize all of these churches were planted in roughly ten years? In a decade. Now I'd like you to consider the fact that of those churches, he spends nearly five of those years in two of them, Corinth and Ephesus. Now, simple math, what percentage is that of his total mission trip? 50. It's 50%. Half of the time he spends that he's been on the mission field, he spent at those two churches. I'd like you to consider that. When Paul was in Ephesus, by the way, people were saying all of Asia, that's that whole west coast of Turkey in its day, has heard the word of God. It was a very effective place. Now I could see why he'd want to stay there. So imagine, you're on the mission field for a decade. Half of that time you spent in two places. Are you guys with me on this? Then Paul will get arrested. No, Paul will get arrested when he's down in Jerusalem. He's arrested initially because they said he brought a Gentile into an area that Gentiles weren't allowed. Though he doesn't say he did. They just said it. Paul had had his head shaved because of a vow, so he probably even looked not like a Jewish guy. And they arrest him, and he becomes a political prisoner for the next couple of years. He ultimately winds up in Rome by 60 AD. And from 60 to 62 AD, which is the end of the book of Acts... He is in house arrest. In other words, he's able to live in a house, not in a prison. By the way, prisons were not places like we get today where you actually get cable and steak. They were a place that was in, that was in a pit where you never saw sunlight. You know, they were basically like what we see as the English medieval prison. You know, you kind of get that idea. Now, if Paul is actually in prison between 60 and 62 A.D., Roughly how old is Paul when he's in house arrest? 60, 62 years old. Now, during that time, Nero is still emperor. Now, hear me on this. <coughs> Nero calls for Paul on many occasions. As he calls for Paul, he calls Rome the eternal kingdom. Paul responds by saying, there is an eternal kingdom, but Nero, it's not yours, baby. Well, loose paraphrase. And he says, but are the eternal kingdom of my king of kings, the cities themselves, the streets are paved with gold. Nero hears that and takes note of it. 60 to 62 AD. At the end of 62 AD, Nero releases him because, to be honest, they have no legitimate reason to have him arrested in the first place. And after Paul is released... In 63 AD, Nero goes public saying he had a vision. His vision was of a city of gold. Oh, the entire city was made of gold. I wonder where he got that idea from. Well, there's a problem. And the problem is, is that 
Rome was broken up into 14 districts. And the wealthy were more than happy to have you cover their buildings in gold. However, there were three districts. Well, they were the slums of Rome. Now, he began what we might call hot gentrification. Do you know what hot gentrification is? Hugo does, because they do hot gentrification in Camden. <laughs> you set something on fire. So that gets the people out that you don't want in the area. I'm not agreeing with this. I'm telling you that's what happens. Something catches fire. I don't know how. And then it burns down, and all the people that live there have to leave. Strange how that happens. It never seems to happen in wealthy houses. Anyways, um, and so now, uh, of the 14 districts of Rome, three of them are, the, the poorest ones are demolished, destroyed by fire. Three of them are untouched. Coincidentally, the Roman boroughs, if you will, the ones where you would find the palaces a kilometer away from the fire, where the fire ever got near. And every other one, in one way or another, is affected. Now there's a problem. Nero, in his impetuous nature, realizes someone's going to want to know who set this thing on fire. So Nero kind of looks, and he remembers. Well, you know, back in the day, about a decade ago, Claudius kicked out all the Jews because they were troublemakers. We know that because in Acts 19, Paul runs into Priscilla and Aquila because they had been kicked out because Claudius kicked out all the Jews out of Rome. But they let him back in, and there were over 100,000 Jewish people living in Rome. Arguably, there were over a million. Now, with that, he knows that, so he goes, who do the Jews hate, and who does everyone else suspect? Well, that was an easy target, so he blames the, the Christians. And everyone starts to go after the Christians. At this point, it was legal to kill a Christian in the street if you were Roman. So... What does Nero do as a result of that? He re-arrests Paul. As he re-arrests Paul, Paul knows this time he's not going to be released. He is now re-arrested in 66 AD. How old is Paul at this point? 66. Now I'd like you to consider this. From 47 to 57, right? Those were his, his church planting years. 47 to 57. It is now... 66, 67. So it's roughly a decade ago was where all of that church planting took place. Does that make sense? In, that, in other words, all of the churches he's planted have had at least 10 years to mature in that time. And during that time, he's had a lot of people he's recruited to serve, if that makes sense. Pastors he's laid and trusted, people that he's seen raised up, that kind of thing happened. Y'all with me so far? Well, now he's, he's not in house arrest like he was the first time. Where, by the way, he writes letters like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, what we call the prison letters, because he wrote them. But when he wrote the prison letters, they were at house arrest. He was basically grounded, you know. That was that first section in 60 to 62 AD. Now he's in the dungeon, and he knows he's going to die. This is him sitting at the doctor, and the doctor says, you have a week to live. Or somewhere in this week, you're going to die. They're going to call you up, and they're going to cut off your head, and everybody's going to cheer because Christians are the bad people because they tried to burn down Rome. Though they didn't, of course. But does that make sense? So Paul's situation right now, I'd like you to consider the fact, is that it, he dies in 67 AD in the Mamertine prison. You can still visit to this day, but 
problem is you go to Rome and you go to the Mamertine prison, it's Catholic, so it's all going to be about Peter. You know, anyways. And, oh, yeah. The only really great thing about that last experience, because they've turned it into this PowerPoint Pink Floyd thing, that is that it's really, there's a lot of air conditioning in there. And so when it's really hot, it's, it's a good thing. But, uh, so, hear, so hear me on this for a moment. Put, let, I mean, let's get this through our head. It's 67 A.D. Okay, how long has Paul been a Christian? 33. 33, excellent. He's been a Christian for 33 years. Now, consider the fact that everything that Paul does that affects eternity happens in 33 years. But let's go beyond that. When did his ministry actually really start? 20 years. Yeah. I mean, so basically for 20 years. Paul was in the ministry less than we've been in the ministry. Isn't that a crazy thought? Of those 20 years, that would have been the time you'd say Paul was in ministry, how many of those years was he actively in missionary ministry? Ten. Only 10 of those years. Do, do, is there any ideas about what he did after he was released from his house arrest before he was re-arrested? Like, was there oh, no that is a good question. Because that's about five years. Yeah, it's, it's a good five years. years. It's conjecture. There are two basic conjectures. One is that Paul went back to all of these churches to go in, and that makes reasonable sense. The other is that he went to Spain. And the reason they, they say that is because in the book of Romans, when Paul writes, he says, I'm gonna, I plan on visiting you en route, en route to Spain. So there are those that are like, well, Paul probably just didn't do that. But we don't have record of it unless you ask a Spaniard who's selling souvenirs. He'll tell you, oh, he'll tell you that Paul, of course, came and here's his cloak and you can buy it for a thousand euros. You know, that kind of thing. So does that make sense so far? I mean, isn't that kind of crazy to put that into perspective? I mean, you realize, uh, unless the Lord come back soon, I anticipate he will. But some of you, to be honest... Dan, how long would you say you've been in ministry? <laughs> how do you answer that, right? Mm-hmm. And you've been serving with your, at your parents' fellowship probably since you were a teen, is my guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I might hang a decade on that. It's roughly. You know? I mean, consider, you know, whatever, but you get the idea here. I mean, if, if it were a decade, you'd be half the time of Paul's total ministry. And you'd be as much time as Paul was on the mission field. What a crazy thought. Now, I wanted to point out a couple of things on this. And this you'll be able to fill in as we go through it, this part where there's sort of the names. But you'll get it here in a moment. That this is the state Paul is in as he's writing this letter. He's in a dungeon... It's nasty and dark. There's no flushing toilets. People just, you poo in your cave. And he says that, and he tells them, you remember how I was afflicted in Iconium, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, how I was persecuted in those places. And he tells us about this guy named Alexander the coppersmith. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did us much harm. And you wonder, well, who in the world is Alexander the coppersmith? Now, we have nowhere else in Scripture that it says Alexander the coppersmith. But I do find something really interesting. In 1 Timothy, Paul spoke about a guy named Alexander 
who he said he delivered to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. And I can't help but think, what if it's the same guy? So in 1 Timothy, if it was, that means Paul had to exercise church discipline on a guy. He was doing something so sinful, so dangerous to the church, that in love of the church, he had to, get, he had to kick him out. If it were, and I, I, tend to, I tend to lean more towards it was the same guy, that now this guy has started a tirade against Christians as a result of it. The problem was, he wasn't walking as a Christian in the first place or Paul wouldn't have had to kick him out. Does that make sense? But no, he, but I guarantee you, if you sat and talked with him over coffee, he'd be telling you, oh, I was Christian, and I was doing all this great stuff, and I was this and that. Then I just, I was innocent, and the guy just kicked me out of church. Usually that's the way they say things. But, but the reason he says this, Paul goes, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's already freaked out and nervous, and he's like, I just want to warn you, this guy's out there. And can he says, by the way, he's done us much harm. He calls it said that he's being poured out as a drink offering, that, Paul, that God delivered him out of the mouth of the lion, that he's asking for a cloak. That tells me something. And that he says his time of departure is at hand. Paul is really clear that he's going to die. And I don't get the idea that he's being melodramatic, but I'll be honest, that's not the part that bothers me the most. The part that bothers me the most is where Paul is with other people. First of all, what he tells us is that Asia... The one place he spent the most time has abandoned him. And I don't even know how many churches that is. It doesn't say. But Asia includes Ephesus. And I can't even imagine what that would be like. That the one place he spent the most time, they've bailed on him. They don't want anything to do with him. Tychicus, by the way, was actually sent to Ephesus... And I can't help but think he sent Tychicus to Ephesus to try to, to try to win him back. We do know that Crescens, by the way, headed to, to Galatia. Demas, we read, has backslided and headed to Thessalonica. Paul said when he gave his first defense, it was right after he spoke about Alexander. I assume Alexander actually tried to get Paul arrested. He tried to bring legal proceedings against him for kicking him out of the church or however he could get to it. He said one... When I made my first defense, no one stood with me. I can't even imagine this. Well, when you count how many churches Paul has planted, and Rome gives you an opportunity to rally up someone as a character witness, when you call on your pastor, when you call on the guys you've invested your life in, and you call them all up and they're like, no, leave me out of this. I don't want any part of this. I can see Paul really hurting. Man. Hermogenes, by the way, has turned away. Vigelis is turned away. Titus is headed to Dalmatia. By the way, I challenge you, because Titus is next, if it is in the context that Paul is writing this, and you can make your own decision, but it appears as if Titus backslid too. The way that Paul is writing it, now either he's being melodramatic, or there's a separation, but there's no language to separate it, or there's a group of people that have all dispersed from Paul, and Titus is one of them. Which is a really weird thing, because when you read the letter to Titus, then you realize this is written to a guy that we know later on is going to bail on Paul. And that's why I can see Paul saying, hey, um, Tim, please don't be ashamed of me. I kind of get the idea these guys were. But what's kind of weird for me to think is that Corinth is still in this state where they're still questioning whether Paul has any qualification to call himself an apostle. And that means that 
half of the time he was on the mission field. <coughs> Asia's turned away, and Corinth is still, the jury's still out on whether Paul's even called to be an apostle. Could you imagine that? Half the time you spent on the mission field is now you look at it and you go, where are they now? And this is what you're going to die with? I mean, this is what, I mean, you're looking and you realize, I'm about to give my life here. I'm about to lose my head. I'm going to stand before the Lord. And wouldn't you review every church you planted? And he looks and he's like, man, the two I spent the most time at, neither one of those would I say is a model anything. They wouldn't fit on the brochure right now. The guys that I trusted in the most, including guys like Titus, and I'm like, these guys, they're just gone. I'm like, Demas, I called him a faithful servant of the Lord with me, and now he's just gone. He says, he, having loved this present world. In other words, somewhere down the line, Demas was just like, mm, I think I've done this Jesus thing enough. I mean, it would just, could you imagine how horrible that would be? In other words, it isn't like, yep, I'm going to lay my head on the block and just feel satisfied. Good work's been done everywhere. Look at all these thriving churches. Everything's just great. So Paul cannot pull his comfort from the work. And the only thing that was left is Paul to say, I fought the fight. I won the race. I kept the faith. So finally there's laid up for me a crown. A crown of righteousness, a crown of rejoicing, a crown of righteousness that God has prepared for those because for me, but not only for me, but all who have loved his appearing. In other words, in the end of it all, he's like, you know, the one thing I really have to rejoice in isn't the discipleship program I had with the guys, because look at all of these guys that are gone. It isn't look at all the churches that I've planted, because some of these churches are full on the wall. Because the only thing that I can really rejoice in in the end is just that I kept the faith through it all and I'm still walking with Jesus and I'm going to see him soon. And I think that's kind of where he had to get to. Now, this is all lengthy because, to be honest, we're pretty much just going to read through the letter and it'll teach itself. But what happens for us between now and the time we do stand before the Lord? I've watched a lot of guys get their worth from the ministry. And when that turns south, they become suicidal because they have nothing else they think they can live for. I've watched some people get it from the guys that they hang out with. And when they turn code on them, they start to question. And by the way, that happens a lot with, pardon me for saying this in a broad generalization, I watch that happen a lot with pastors' wives. Or even just women who are married or really close to, you know, dating somebody that's in the ministry, a man that's in the ministry, where... All of a sudden, all of these people that were their close friends turn to become enemies somehow. And you're like, and the first thing you, that it seems that is asked there is, what did I do? Why do they hate me now? And you, and you wonder what you have to do to change that. Sometimes there's nothing you can do to change that. And the reason I say that is, in the end, if we cannot get our comfort from our walk with the Lord, we're going to be basket cases. And if I can just be raw with you, I think many of us in this room have been there in the last couple of years because we've watched things happen and the Lord has had to get us back to that place where it's like just me and you has to be good enough because 
all this other stuff is going to be is going to be meaningless otherwise. So yeah, it's um, but it's not a downer. It's not a downer book, but it sure could be if you read all of this situation. I mean, wouldn't this be an easy time for Paul just to be like, "You all suck. You know, you're terrible and miserably stupid. No, I forget the whole thing. Boy, am I glad to die and leave you." You know, he could have done that, but he didn't. And praise God. And if he did write a letter like that, praise God, it didn't make it into scripture. <laughs> But he does talk about Timothy and his faith and his fears and his tears. He speaks about this, and it's clear Timothy is really freaked out. And at this moment, Paul, like the guy I get to speak with, he's more concerned with Timothy. And can you kind of see why he's like, Timothy, I really need you right now. And he'll be like, could you come, please? Now, we actually don't know where Timothy is at this point. It's assumed that he's in Ephesus, but he will say that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And he... And, and, and you'd think that Timothy would know it if a guy showed up that Paul sent, but just the same. So we don't have it. We just know that he has to be west of Troas, so he has to be in Europe, because he's going to ask him, when you pop through Troas, will you pick up my cloak, please? Oh, and the parchments. Please get my books. I'd really like to you know, get, get my books and get my coat. You know, and that tells me a little bit where he's at. Hey, when you're in prison, a coat's kind of an important thing. It isn't like, oh, I'm sorry. Is it cold in here? I'll go turn up the heat. Obviously, that's not going to happen. So, with that, we'll go into the book. But I'm going to do this. We'll just take a moment, and we'll actually, we'll pray. And I just want to pray that for us, that our hearts would be first and foremost always about us with Jesus, that that's the thing that will make our hearts give a beat. Then we'll take a quick break for cupcakes and ice cream. And then when you get hyped up on sugar, we're going to read through the book together. Four chapters. It's not very long. And again, what you'll find, by the way, interesting is there are roughly like 35 commands in this uh, four-chapter book, of, of which, by the way, a third of them directly address the issue of false teachers. Because in the midst of all of the state of all this craziness, it's like the circumcisions gained ground, and people teaching philosophies and distracting Christians, that's gaining ground. And obviously Alexander Coppersmith, he's causing all this trouble. And then there's these guys, these two guys running around saying, oh, the rapture happened and you didn't make the cut, you know. And so that's freaking people out. And Paul, I mean, imagine you, Paul's leaving, and even as a pastor who wants to see doctrine taught well, he's like, man, this whole thing is like a mess. You know, and there would be a part, if you thought you were the guy to hold it together, you'd be like, God, I can't die now. Look at all these fires I have to put out. And God's like, Paul, you've done what you need to do. Now that's someone else's job. So then Paul goes, oh, okay, Timothy. <laughs> and you could say, Timothy, I need you, man. And then, could you please try to get here before winter? I really could use you right now. And I think it's really sweet. Let me, let me ask you, like, when everyone else seems to bail, are you confident you've got a guy or two that you could really turn to and go, hey, I, I, I need you right now, and they'd be there? I am absolutely confident I have that. Absolutely confident. First of all, this poor gal's been stuck with me for 27 years. She's not leaving now. But I am confident in that with my guys, too. I'm totally confident with that. Now, I think the only answer I might get is my boss won't let me off work, but... I do get the idea, though, that I have guys I really trust that one. Praise God for that. Well, let's pray. We'll take a break to hype up on sugar, and then uh, we'll go through the book. Fair enough? Are there any questions? It's kind of cool to get that overview of Paul, isn't it? Kind of puts things into perspective. All right, well, Lord, get us to that place again where we're just right with you and that it all makes sense, Lord, to, oh, God, just that, 
at the end when we stand before you, it's not going to be about how many churches were planted or how many guys were raised up, even though those are easy things to want to gauge. And we've certainly seen factories where those kind of things happen by number, and it's disastrous in that too. In the end, it'll be whether or not we walk with you and we were obedient, because obedience is really the only gauge of success. So Lord, I pray for us that you get us back to that place where we could just love walking with you and trusting that obedience is all you're really looking for. The rest is yours. So we commit that to you now, Lord. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I will, I'll try to make only a few comments here and there. I, you know, maybe define a few terms. One of my favorites is stir up. It's a stir up the gift. Um, and the reason why I, I think I really like that particular word, um, is because I used to play in this black gospel group back in the Central Coast. And they had this song. And uh, I, I, every time I hear stir up the gift, I can just see them. And they're all, and they'd have to sing. And they go, stir up the gift. And they'd all be like, oh. And they're just... It just made it. It just made it so good. Anyway. All right, you guys ready? All right. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. May we now just get, may we just bathe in it like we should, Lord, and let your word teach us. And, Lord, may we take the challenges that you've given to Timothy, Lord, to heart, and that we ourselves, Lord, would take that mantle and seek to rise up and do that which you call us in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. One quick statement. You know, Paul almost always just says grace and peace. But he throws mercy in, and I tend to always think, man, when a guy's in the ministry, he really could use as much mercy as he can get. All right. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. (coughs) Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, is it Lois? Mm -hmm. And your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the play of my hand. Now, the term, stirring up, anazuporajo, is the term that you use when something that was a big fire has become a smaller fire. Hulk, big fire. You are smoldering fire. You know, it's like, in the idea of where you would often take it, you would fan it back into a big fire. That's the idea here. In other words, Paul is looking at Timothy. Consider this. And Timothy, at one point, like, Timothy, you should be a raging thing by this point. And I'm just, you're, you're just kind of smoldering. And not like good-looking guy smoldering, you know, <laughs> and kind of give you that look. But he's like, man, you should be on fire. And right now, you're just kind of embers. And he goes, can I just remind you? And he goes, it's the gift, buddy. It's the gift I want you to fan back into a big flame. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Many of us are familiar with that verse. That's the context of it. In other words, he's saying, you know, fan that gift back into flame because if you're afraid, God has not given you that. Yeah. 
saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. It has now been revealed by the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. To which I have appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentile. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The word for keep, for what it's worth, is a really cool word. The word is philoso. And there are certain words for keep, like there's a word that in, in essence means to guard from escaping. There's another word which means to guard from somebody breaking in. And then there's another word that is, in the reference isn't in regards to something getting in and out of a door, so to speak, but the thing itself. And the thing itself is so precious, you have a specific way you guard it. And the way that you guard it isn't just from somebody stealing it, though that could be one of the things. But it could decay or get old or it could be damaged. That particular word's philosophy, and that's the word he uses here. So when he says, that good thing that was committed to you, treat it like it's a precious, beautiful, priceless thing, and guard it for that. Remember, he's like, you should, be, you should be busy right now, and one of the ways you should actually guard it is by actually being busy up and doing it. Did you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, from my poor, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Now, it's interesting for what it's worth. The two names. First of all, you know, I mean, imagine being able to say that a whole region is turned away from Paul. I mean, we, I mean, we think of Paul as such a gifted person. You would never think that. There would be this mass evacuation of people from a guy like this. And yet, the entire western side of Turkey has bailed on him. The place he spent the most time. And among whom he mentions two people by name, which we would never know even existed if it wasn't for this text. So they're forever recorded in scripture as the two guys who bailed on Paul. Have a nice day. And the guy's name, Figelis, literally means to run away. 
I mean, maybe the Paul's are going, you know, like all these people have bailed. I mean, like a guy whose name means run away. I should have saw it coming. Right? And then another guy whose name is Hermogenes. And Hermogenes means, in essence, to follow the messenger or to follow the talker. Comes from Hermes, the, you know, the guy who was the, you know, remember how Paul and, and uh, Barnabas were once called Zeus and Hermes? Paul was called Hermes because he was the messenger, was the idea. And so the idea of Hermogenes, in essence, means to be birthed out of or to come, or to, to come from or to follow the messenger. So what you have are two people, one guy that's known for running away and one guy that's just known for following the next thing he saw on YouTube. That's kind of the idea here. And I, and, I mean, imagine, you're like, hmm. He goes, but there's this other guy. And I love the fact that Paul doesn't just harp on the, those two guys. He could have spent a lot of time on it, but he didn't. We get more verses on this other guy, and this guy's name means useful. Anesiphorus. He goes, oh man, thank the Lord for that guy. And you know what? Can I just say this? When it seems like everybody is bailing, one person that's faithful can make the difference, can be all the difference in the world. And that's what Paul is saying. And I wonder how many times, man, Paul saw some huge avalanche of turning away and, and you know, we don't even read that all of these people have backslid. We'll read about that about other people later. But they've turned away from Paul. I don't even know what that means. I mean, either they've completely walked away from the Lord, or they've started their own thing. They just don't want Paul to be a part of it. Either way, it's got to suck for Paul, if you think about it. But in that, you know, he goes, but then there's these guys. But then there was this this one guy. Man, he sought me out. He, you know, he, he didn't just wait. He sought me out, and he refreshed me time and again. And God bless this guy. Now imagine, he's telling Timothy that. And Timothy is now, in essence, in Paul's shoes. That's a rough place to be. Does that make sense? And by the way, for what it's worth, these are the things he's been saying. Stir up the gifts. He goes, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, and, and please don't be ashamed of me. I kind of get the idea that a lot of the people who bailed, like Asia, maybe bailed because they were ashamed that Paul was in prison again. Kind of a crazy thought. In other words, it's like, wow, by now you'd think Paul would be like on top of everything. He'd be the emperor. He'd be the new Caesar. And we're like, oh, he's in prison again? All right. Chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the thing that you have heard from me amongst many witnesses, commit this to your faithful men who will able to teach others also. By the way, the word commit there, another really cool <coughs> word, paratithemi, like Timothy means precious. Paratithemi means actually to place something precious beside someone. And often that's done in a wedding ceremony or like in, in the bargaining to, to obtain a bride, you know, or it's done where you put something beside something to sweeten the deal or you put it in, into someone else's hands because you trust them. But again, remember how he was talking about that gift being something precious. Now he's looking, he's going, now look at that which you've heard, that you've heard me speak publicly. Notice he says, you've heard from me among many witnesses. In other words, he goes, those private talks, I'm not talking about that. He goes, but the stuff you've heard me say in front of other people, he goes, take that and hold it as precious, and then put it beside other people you know are going to be careful with it. There's the idea. You therefore must endure hardship as a good, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in wherefore entangles himself with the affairs of this life, 
that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say. May the Lord give you understanding in all things. Okay, now hold on one second. Now, from verses 3 to 7, he gives us three examples. What are those three examples? Three different kinds of people. Okay, so an athlete, a soldier, and a farmer. Do you get that? And he says, with each one of them, there's kind of something that we can learn from them. By the way, isn't it cool to think 2,000 years ago, Paul could write and say, these are three different kinds of people. 2,000 years later, we can look and go, oh, we still have those same kinds of people. Okay, so what's the one thing he says about a soldier? What can we learn from a soldier according to this? Endure hardship. Okay, yeah, endure hardship. He goes, therefore, but he says there's some, something specific about a soldier that we should learn from. Good soldier. He doesn't entangle himself with the affairs of his life. Excellent, he stays focused. He goes, good soldier, by the way, is not divided in his heart. He knows who he serves. And I think that's a lesson Paul had to learn the hard way. I mean, he knew he was serving the Lord, but there's a lot of people that have been serving with him that he's now watched Baal, and that's got to be really rough. He goes, look at what we can learn from soldiers are, this is a battle, and because it's a battle, you really can't afford to lose focus. Okay, second one's an athlete. What do we learn about them? Excellent, and boy, have we not seen that recently? I mean, in the last year, I think we've seen at least... 18 different people be disqualified due to doping. And it's like, you know, and now, of course, they're doing documentaries and all kinds of things about it. Um, and it's like, look at they've won, but now they haven't won anymore. The trophy's gone and all that, because there's a set of rules that have to work. You can't change the rules. Okay, so soldiers stay focused. Athletes are rule keepers. What about farmers? eat what they grow first. Excellent. And you know what's a cool rule. Farmers feast first. And the idea is, if you're a counselor, but you're not taking your own advice, you know, if, if you want to actually say, I want you to have the joy of the Lord, but you don't have it, and you want somebody to come to know Jesus, but you're not really walking knowing him, it's like, you know, <clears throat> you know even Shakespeare said, don't trust a and loose paraphrase, but don't trust a chef who won't lick his fingers, you know. And actually, the reference he was using about a guy that was giving advice that he clearly didn't listen to himself. And he goes, "No, no, listen to what he's like. No, listen to me. Listen to what I say. Consider this, because this is really the ministry in threefold. One is this is a battle, and because it's a battle, you better stay focused. Don't go and try to love the world and try to love the Lord and think you're going to get anywhere this way. Second." You know, you know you're, an, you're an athlete in this, and because of that, you need to compete according to the rules. God's got a specific way he wants it done. You do it his way. You don't do it your own. You can't play by your own rules in this and think you're going to win. And then third, but as a farmer, as fruit grows, partake of it. Enjoy it. So that when, as the Lord grows in you, those things, then you're able to show other people and say, I want you to have this too. All right. Verse 8. Of David, 
was raised from the dead, according to my gospel. For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Give the legend to present yourself for proof to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I mean, did you notice that? He said, a workman who what? Does not need to be ashamed. Does that mean that there are workers who really need to be ashamed? He's like, there are people who really need to be ashamed, but they're not. Well, what would you do to not be ashamed or to be in a position where you wouldn't need to be ashamed, according to this verse? Not to be yourself. Sorry? Like not to be yourself. Okay. Well, notice what it says. You need not be ashamed because what are you properly doing? Competing according to the rules. Yeah. One last thing. And look at verse 15. Yeah, look at what he says at the end of it. Excellent. You rightly divide the word of truth. He goes, a workman that doesn't rightly divide the word of truth should be ashamed of himself. Now, what's interesting is the term rightly dividing is actually a tent-making term. But after all, remember how that's what Paul tried to do when he just tried to work as a normal human being during those years? And the term literally means to properly hem, where you take a piece of, of cloth and another piece of cloth, and you put the right ones together in the right way, and then give them a proper seam. If you do it wrong, then you've got a leak, and you know what happens when it rains. Tents aren't so good when it rains, if there's a big hole in the top. Then what you have is a little swimming pool inside. So... He says, this is what you should do with the word. You take the situation and the proper word and you put the ones that put together properly. And he goes, that's what you should be. And he goes, a person who's actually a teacher of the law or a teacher of the word, but isn't doing that properly, he goes, and they should be ashamed of themselves. He goes, Timothy, but don't be that. You'd be a good worker. Verse 16. But shun profane and either bad means. For they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. And you get, wow, isn't that awesome? Hymenius. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. Okay, but first of all, Excellently done. That's a rough verse for anyone. You know. But first of all, I find it interesting, and, and I, don't, I very, very seldom do this, but the fact that they translate the word cancer. The word in the Greek is gangrenous, or gangrenos. You want to guess what word we get from that? Gangrene. Which, by the way, they both work, but I get the idea of gangrene. It's like when something spreads, you've got to cut it off. right? And he goes, this is what this message is doing. 
You know what's really interesting? Is what their two names mean again. Remember how there were two people's names before? And now there's two more people. The two, first two were like literally fugitive or the guy who runs away. And then you've got um, the second one. Remember that? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, following the, the, the leader, uh, following the messenger. Well, in these cases, we have two more. Hymenius and Philetus. Hymenius, by the way, means God of, well, it was, is the God of weddings. And I find that really interesting because that's definitely something you see lead people astray all the time is, man, I just got to get a mate. I got, man, my biological clock's ticking. And, you know, it's like, you know, you're in trouble when you're reading the Old Testament and going, oh, I can still have babies. Look at Sarah. You know, so there's that person. And then there's the person Philetus. And Philetus means to be likable. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see that happening with these people, too. It's like people are babbling and leading people astray. And granted, they're just people, but their names I just find really interesting. One is like, you know, where, where, and I love what Paul said when he spoke to the Colossians when he says, you need to know you're complete in Jesus. Jesus is all you need. And people will say, well, it's easy for you to say you've been married. And I'm like, the, some of the loneliest people I've ever known were people who were married. Because a person doesn't feel that unless it's Jesus. And he goes, but again, nothing wrong with being married. Praise the Lord for that. But when somebody tries to make you feel like you're a lesser of a person because you're not, that's a really bad place to be. And then there's a guy who's like, you know what, I just want to be liked. I'm following Jesus. There are going to be people who aren't going to like you for it. And can I just say in love, get over it. All right, so, uh, verse 18. What are these guys doing, though, that are freaking people out? Who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. And they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the sound found. <laughs> Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal: the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now hold on, but yeah, no, let me just do this. Oh, I just <laughs> got in time. Don't miss that. Eighteen and nineteen are together. They're the same thing. What they're saying is. Jesus came for the rapture, and he didn't take you. Now, how would that make you feel? There's only one thing that you can miss in it. The guy who's telling you obviously missed too. So I really want to trust the guy who's obviously missed the rapture too. Right, if that makes sense. And so they're freaking out. He goes, look it. Let me just make something clear. God knows who's his. Which tells us that what this was like was like, Jesus came, but he didn't recognize you, so he just kind of left without you. He's like, look at God knows his hands. And when he comes, he's going to take his own. He goes, but you need to know this. If you're going to name the name of Christ, you should walk away from sin. That should not be your life anymore. All right. And he's going to use a metaphor for that, starting in verse 20. Um, but in the great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some of, or, some of honor and some of dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. How does a vessel go from dishonor to honor? What does it have to do? The thing inside of it. Cleanse, be cleansed from what's inside. Which tells us, by the way, that what makes something honorable and dishonorable is actually what it holds. Do you know what a Ming vase is made out of? Ceramic. 
It's cool. That's a yeah. Sorry, porcelain. Yeah, thank you. Which yeah. Okay, so it's porcelain. It's really cool. Do you know what else is porcelain? Your toilet. They're both porcelain. They're made of the same material. So why does one sell for so much and one not sell for so much? What they contain. In one case, it contains a tremendous amount of artwork. Actually, on the vase itself. It's not just old, because if you could say that, you could say, oh, look, I found an old porcelain toilet. This should be worth lots. Well, what it contained really wasn't that valuable. Or we wouldn't be busy getting rid of it. And the point of it is, is what makes us valuable is not the shell. That's what we contain. That's important. And for your own time, you can compare it to chapter 9 of Romans, verses 21 through 23, because people say, well... God makes some vessels for honor and some for dishonor. And I'm like, well, guess what? If you're made dishonor, you can cleanse yourself of that actually and actually become a vessel of honor. He told us that here. Well, we'll talk about, let's talk about cleansing the inside. Verse 22. Be also used with us, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord of out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Human servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape and escape the snow of the devil, having being taken captive by him to do his will. Don't miss this quick and we're moving on. We're more than halfway through. He told us to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. What's a dispute? An argument. Yeah, it's an argument. Avoid those. What do they, you know what they do? They generate strife. And we talk about the difference between strife and striving. The one's a sin and one's not. Strife and striving. We personally strive. We compete against ourselves. Strife is when you compete against another. So the idea of it is, I have to be better than you. It's a competitive spirit God does not approve of. But striving means I'm seeking to be better than the old me, of which God is really good with. So there's the difference. So he goes, look it. This is the reason I say that. So avoid these arguments, because all it's going to do is make people try to get better than each other. Does that make sense? And if you're going to be a servant of the Lord, don't be quarreling. Don't be starting these arguments, but rather teach and correct in humility as it's the case. Because now who are you correcting in a case like this? Somebody who's starting these arguments. You know what he says about him? That person starting an argument at this moment is taken captive to do the will of the enemy. Is that a crazy thought? Guess what the will of the enemy is? To divide brothers. You know how he does it? He gets you to argue. And what we're going to find is you can do that through philosophy or all kinds of really dumb things, genealogies and all kinds of things. He goes... Man, it's just not scripture. But you can try to argue. Usually the arguments start over things that people think they're really, really smart over. Now, let's go to chapter 3. But notice that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, look at this list as we read this. How many of these things people actually say are good things today? Men will be lovers of themselves. Isn't that being promoted? Lovers of money... Boasters? How about proud? Didn't we just have Pride Month? Or are we still in it? 
blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despised of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Did you notice, by the way, this whole list, we can look at it and we go, duh, that's just our culture, because the problem isn't it's our culture, the problem is it's in the church. It says they have a form of godliness. Because the problem isn't that the world's like this. The problem is that the church is like this. Because there's the problem. Because you know what you do with those people? When they, especially when they call themselves a brother. First Corinthians 5 makes that clear. That you, you don't even eat with them. You don't get mixed up with them. Here it says you turn away. He goes, man, when they want to come and do their thing and they want to divide brothers and they want to, this is who they are. You're like, we ain't hanging. Verse 6. <clears throat> For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Paul was learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as chains and chambers resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, these are proved concerning the faith. But they will. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Hey, so notice, and they mentioned Johns and Jambres. Who are these guys? Well, there have been situations in the book of Numbers where men have stood up and in essence said, who died and made you boss, Moses? You know, I mean, loose paraphrase. For which, of course, things do not turn out very well for them. But they're never mentioned by name. So some people put those two together, and it's reasonable to do so, but you can't state it as gospel fact, if that makes sense. What's clear is a couple people stood up against Moses, and in that, and he goes, in the end of it all, these were not men who were concerned about the care of other people. This was, it was all about them. And he goes, by the way, it'll never end well for a guy like that. But you, on the other hand, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Oh, will you read that one more time, please? Yep. Um, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Oh, three, Pete, once more. <laughs> Come on, bring it up. Bring it home. I want the organ playing. Wow. Okay, Sam. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Okay, so quick quiz. You heard it three times. Who will suffer persecution? That's a toughie, yeah. <laughs> yes. Don't miss this. It doesn't say all who have accomplished it. There's the problem. It doesn't say, oh, congratulations. Because if it were the case, at least you'd go, yay, I got to live godly because I'm suffering persecution, right? It says, man, the moment you desire it. Don't miss that. You're like, ah, oh, today I'm going to live for Jesus. And that's the day that it all starts busting on you. That's the day everything's in your grill. And he goes, Paul, remember, Paul's writing to freaked out Timothy. 
saying, fan this flame, fan this gift back into flame. Man, guard the thing and call it precious and put it to use. He goes, you just need to know this. This is not unique, Timothy. People bailing on you, Paul's like, oh, do I know that one? He goes, people actually saying they hate you and coming back and with a vengeance and trying to get revenge on you for doing what God called you to? He goes, oh, I know that one, Timothy. People trying to make your life miserable? Let me just say this. Every human being on the planet, if they desire to live godly in Christ, they're going to be persecuted. So guess what, Timothy? Congratulations, you made the cut. <laughs> Is that one of those places where it's like, I'm not too real sure I want to make that team. But you definitely want to make that team. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. Holy Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly, thoroughly, sorry, equipped for every good work. Notice, by the way, it says all scripture. That includes the book of Leviticus. That includes every book of the Bible. He says, every book of the Bible is going to be beneficial to you. For doctrine, to correct you where needed, to actually rebuke you when, where needed, to instruct you in righteousness, because what, what he wants is for you to be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work God has planned for you. And he goes, oh, you need to know that. And I remind you, he's like, Timothy, you know from, this, from a child, in this room, that's, and I don't know about you, Timothy, so I don't know this, but I know that may just be Daniel. Well, perhaps a bit with them, but it's like, I mean, you were raised on Scripture. You cut your teeth on Scripture. Obviously, yes. <laughs> yes, and Mia, right. He's like, you know, he's like, he's like, you should know this, and you just need to know none of that Scripture is worthless. It doesn't matter what it was. You're like, I don't get this yet. Oh, you will. It's still going to be useful. You just may not see how yet, but it is going to be useful, and you need to trust me on that. So, did you notice it tells us that evil, like posers, imposters in verse 13, that they'll not only get worse and worse and worse, they'll deceive and they'll continue being deceived. Mm -hmm. That they will, they will actually continue to get worse themselves and as a result of that, they'll continue to make others worse. Hey, last chapter. Are you ready? Good. That, was, that wasn't even whelming. Alright. Verse 1. I charge you, before Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exalt with all long suffering and teaching. Okay, what are you to do with the word? What is it? Preach. Preach. Why doesn't he just say teach the word? You have to live it. Ooh, that's nice. Teach. Didasco means to transfer information. We can be in a church like that where all we're doing is transferring information. Preach, caruso, means you're giving information, challenging people to make a choice with it. Don't just inform people. That's philosophy. Preach it. Preach the word. 
at the end of it all, there should be something that's like, what are we going to do about this? That's the point of it. Or we could just be big, fat babies. We don't grow in our faith, but we just eat and we eat and we eat and we never exercise. So we become big blobs. There's the end. Let me tell you why that's so important, Timothy's, of which I am one. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. In other words, all they really want is to find somebody that tells them that what they really want to do, they can do. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Do you see the four commands there? Be watchful, endure, evangelize, and fulfill your ministry. How do you fulfill your ministry? By being watchful, enduring, doing the work of the evangelist. Oh, by the way, in preaching the word, of course. That was all up there in two. Well, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good food, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, now don't miss this. He calls himself, his life at the moment is a, like a drink sacrifice. A drink sacrifice is not the initial sacrifice. There's already a sacrifice happening. But you take wine, that's alcoholic, and you pour it on a fire. What happens when you pour something alcoholic on a fire? It burns bigger. The fire goes... He goes, that's what my life's like. I'm, what I want to do with the rest of my life, for Paul, that's not much, is I want to take something that's a little flame and pour out my life in a way that it becomes a big flame. How does that relate to anything else in this book so far? Can you remember anything? That's right, because that's what happened in the beginning. Remember, he's like, Timothy, right now the gift you have is a little flame and you need to stir that thing into a fire. Paul goes, I'll give my life for that if I have to. It's kind of cool how that comes up from the beginning and the end. Huh? Oh, and you got a fun verse. Names. <laughs> oh, Hugo. Okay, go ahead. Be diligent to come to me quickly. When I fall in love, has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Nice, Galatia. Mm-hmm. Yes, where you know they—that's where they where they make all those spotted dogs. <laughs> okay, now now I, I need you. I need you to be honest with me here. With no preconceived knowledge of anyone's 
leading or guidance, you read this verse, just this verse. Read it on your own. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. I must departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Does it sound like all three of these guys have forsaken him? Or does it sound like only one has, but the other two, they kind of left for some other reason? What do you think? I mean, there's a part of me that wants it to be that the other two were sent on errands because I'm about to read Titus and I want to have a better attitude toward it. Here's my problem. Look at verse 12. He actually does list someone that he has sent on an errand. Now, we don't have, I mean, we can't build gospel doctrine on it, if that makes sense. But I have to be honest, in the Greek language, it really does sound like all three of these people, for whatever reason at least, are a disappointment at this moment. One of them's obvious. Demas has forsaken him. And he even said, he left the present world. He's backslidden. He went to Thessalonica. Which, by the way, I remind you, was the hotbed for that circumcision group. Remember how they chased Paul not only there, but then they went west? and chased him out of Berea. So he's like, he more than likely, he didn't stop being religious, he just stopped following Jesus, if that makes sense. And to do that, he'd have to turn against Paul. He goes, but Crescens, who was probably French, because he's like croissants, um, he went to Galatia, and then Titus went to, does anyone know what Dalmatia is? It's in Croatia. It was one of the four ancient regions of Croatia. So, so that's quite of a distance. And, and again, I can't preach you this doctrinal fact, but it, there is something to say that he does split that from the guy that he actually sent to And why would he send Tychicus to Ephesus? More than likely because, remember how Ephesus is the capital of Asia. Remember, they've all turned against him, and he's like, Tychicus, i got to trust you. Can you go over there and try to talk some sense into these people? I mean, which tells me, by the way, he isn't giving up on those people. Quite something to say. Okay. You get oh, bring us some encouragement, Daniel. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for ministry. You remember how Mark was the reason they got in that big fight with Barnabas in the first place? He's like, Oh please, I could really use it. I'll take anyone right now. I'll take I'll take Mark. Now, why do you think Luke's with him? Well, Paul might be pretty sick by this point. <laughs> you know. And I imagine this would be a rough time to be a doctor because Paul's in prison. And he's like, great, i got to take care of a guy that's in a pit. Anyways. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Calchas at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the departments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our works. At my first defence, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. Did you notice how that came right after the Alexander statement? Mm -hmm. I mean, for him to give a defence is a legal defence. For him to give a legal defence, it seems to be, again, it just seems that that's the result of whatever Alexander the coppersmith did, which tells me, and again, if it is the Alexander from 1 Timothy that he actually kicked out, that means he did something that Paul had to exercise church discipline on 
And the guy turned around and did something to try to get Paul arrested for it. Maybe not directly that, but he was like, well, fine. In other words, he was just being vindictive. And he's like, well, God, give Alexander what he deserves for that. But he goes, I want to warn you. This is what this guy is doing right now, Timothy. You're already freaked out, but you better be aware of this guy. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, could he have been thrown to lions? Well, it's only one. Could he have been thrown to a lion? No reason why that couldn't be possible. Could it be metaphoric? Sure. What's clear is, it was not an experience you would volunteer for. <laughs> is that fair to say? Okay. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And you get more names. You're awesome. By the way, does anyone remember Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus, mm-hmm. from this book already? What do we know about the guy? Useful. He's useful, right? And what did he do in the beginning? Yes, um, refreshed. yes, he was the refresher. Remember, he was the one who sought Paul out when he was in Rome the first time. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, which, by the way, the same guy that was such a blessing to Paul the first time seems to be with Timothy right now. That's a mm-hmm. cool thing. Dan, you better read the names perfect. Uh, Let's try. Uh, so, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but uh, Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Uh, do your utmost to come before winter. Remember, he already said, please come, and now he's like, did you actually come quicker? <laughs> hasn't finished the, the letter yet are you here yet <laughs> you know Eubulus greets you and then one of my favorite names as well is Puddens who names their person their son Puddens and Linus he's obviously a little piano player Claudia and all the brethren the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit grace be with you Amen Amen now, you have now just read the entire uh, letter of Second Timothy. It's kind of bittersweet, isn't it? But there's one thing that I find really interesting. Who was the person he left sick? Trophimus. Do you know he's actually mentioned before this point? And I think you should know why. Back in the book of Acts, chapter 20, remember how I said that Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple? Mm-hmm. The person that he was accused of bringing into the temple was Trophimus. Well, I think it's just kind of interesting. 
So they started because of that. Okay, so do this. In our last minute, by the way, we have two minutes before 8.30. How about that? We nailed the whole thing. Um, sum up the book. You tell me, what's the book basically about? If you were to put it in a couple sentences. The worst job prospectus ever. Hey, <laughs> 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 Timothy, so there's any job. They're not going to persecute you. Uh, they're going to forsake you too. But enjoy the role. <laughs> yeah, but it's precious, man. Yeah. And I know you're scared. This isn't helping. <laughs> but is there anything Paul is looking forward to? Looks like you're coming. What's that? It's like Timothy coming. It sounds mm-hmm. like you're looking mm-hmm. forward to that. And bringing his stuff. <laughs> bringing his stuff. That's good. But there's something I think he's looking forward to even more so. Although I will grant with you. And I kind of wonder if he's calling Timothy. He's like. You might want to get here quick because he's kind of, you know, like the terminal illness thing. All right, sending all your children, you know, to come here. Listen. I fought this fight, Timothy. I fought it. I fought the fight. I'm coming down the hill, you walking up. I fought this fight. Remember that athlete thing? I finished this race. Isn't that interesting? The two things he was telling us about, two of the three metaphors. And now there is awaiting me a crown, a crown of righteousness. Because after all of this, after all of this disgrace and dishonor, there is going to be honor. And I'm going to spend the rest of eternity with a crown. Right now, it's a crowd, and it's not a good one. He goes, but I am going to stand before God with honor for eternity. Timothy, don't miss that. And don't miss that, friends, because we went past it and to see if whether we could, whether that would pick up as a burr in our sock on our way as we walk through the field. If you forget that, you'll forget how worth it it is. Hey, Paul pulls no punches about how challenging this is. And it's like, what's clear is, unless we really think we could do it better than Paul, I think it's a little weird. (laughs) Chances are we're going to have our share of it too. And we have had our share. I'd love to think, hey God, that's enough for the rest of my life. And I'm sure Paul said that on a few occasions. I haven't been shipwrecked three times. How about you guys? (laughs) Following the Lord. Beaten with rods, whipped, thrown in a poo prison. Not once, but at least thrice. You know, I mean, stoned to death once. That hasn't been my story, and I confidently would say I don't think it's been any of yours either. Mia, has that happened to you? That happened to any of that? Probably not, huh? Not in my life. Okay, good, good. Well, may it never. But when you stand before the Lord, and you see all of that you've set your hands to, hey, some of those people, they get wonky, they come back. Some people don't. Some people actually go worse. Are deceived and being deceived and go from worse to worse. He warned us of that. He said, perilous times, people are going to not care about the truth. They're going to make up their own mind and then just try to find someone on YouTube to validate it. And unfortunately, there's at least one guy on YouTube that probably will. And they'll say, I know it looks like it says this, but if you twist it and you look at it with one eye squinted, it looks like this word. You know, and we all know this word in the Portuguese means this, you know, and the next thing you know, it's like, 
Oh, okay. That's how you got there. Because don't you forget that this isn't about temporary. If this was just about having a happy life on earth and that's it, Paul would say, then we're the stupidest people on the planet. We're the ones we should pit, that should be pitied more than anyone. But we're going to stand before the Lord and for eternity we get to celebrate our obedience that we've had with Him. And he goes, at that point, none of this is going to matter like it does right now. At that point, you will see the fruit of your labor. And even that same person that got wonky and tried to get Paul to prison, he had to give a defense for, put Paul in front of other people that may have given their life to Christ in the courtroom. That Paul would never have seen had it not been for that. Paul might never have known that until he stands before the Lord and some guy goes, hey, by the way, when you were in that courtroom that day, I gave my life to Jesus. Thanks for that. And you're like, wow. And all I was just thinking is, please don't send me to prison one more time. And he goes, and when that person got crazy, somebody over here was actually just watching. And they, what they were watching is, that guy's not backing down on this. He's, he's sincere about his faith. And when they saw this thing look like a political mess, but it somehow never turned you away from Jesus, and they're like, well, hey, this is a phase. Well, this will do it. This will be the end. This guy's certainly going to walk away from Jesus now. And he doesn't. And somebody says, dude, I follow Jesus because of that. And you won't know that until you stand before the Lord because you know it'll look like another jewel on the crown that you wear. You're like, and I, I think I'm just going to want to look at this crown and go, tell me about this one. Tell me about this one. And is it, couldn't it be just cool if you could do it? Not This is not doctrinal. Could you have to go just like that? And you could just press it and then just see that person for the moment and see what happened in their life. And you're like, wow, that moment I hated so much was actually worth it now. Oh, and that moment of hardship... Wow, okay, now it's worth it because I don't have to live it again. But now it's totally worth it. And that moment that I cried because it hurt so bad, or this moment because I just felt so abandoned, or this moment when I stood there and tried to get my defense and nobody would stand with me, and I was flabbergasted that I'm like, you soak your whole life, and at this point you're like, I'm not keeping score, but this is a pretty easy score to keep. You know? And he's like, but now it's all worth it. Because all that stuff's going to be gone, and all that's going to be left is this crown that's going to just of the people's lives you've touched. He goes, Timothy, please don't forget that. Because if you forget that, you'll quit. And you'll probably quit the moment you get this letter. And you can't quit, because I need you here. I need that cloak from Troas. <laughs> and those parchments and those books. Don't forget those. And you better get here quickly, because maybe the next time you see me, there'll be two of me. So, and that's what I want to pray for us. Somewhere down the line in Paul's first missionary trip, he was stoned and left for dead. And he would later say in 2 Corinthians that he got a vision of seventh heaven that was so amazing that he said it was, he goes, I can't even tell you guys. But it got him through the rest of this. And I go, These, though, I mean, you may want that vision, but you certainly wouldn't want to have that happen to you to make it get there. Well, then let this be, in essence, the installment. We're reminded again, eternity's at, at stake for people. And all of the weird things that happen are going to lead other people to Jesus if you hold on and do it right. Stay obedient. And that's what he's saying. So, if you're in one of those places where you're letting the fire of the flame of the calling God's put on your life turn into a, something you couldn't roast a marshmallow on, can I say, stir up the gift, <laughs> stir up the gift. And believe me, that's actually how they, they did it. Anyway, um, and so let's pray that. Let's pray that for each other now. Would you do that with me?
Lord, I want to thank you so much for this challenging and beautiful book. And I want to thank you for the challenge that you've given us to really do that, to really be serious, Lord, about the calling, because we won't be able to evangelize anyone when we stand before you. That'll all be done. There'll be nobody left to teach and disciple and no one else to invest in, no one else to pastor, no one else to to preach the gospel to or preach the word to. This is the one place we get that. And I'm sure, Lord, if any of us were honest, we would know even from the life we've already lived, we could look back and if you were to come right now, there were moments we wish we could do again that were at the moment difficult. And we got more caught up in the difficulty of the moment than the eternity of its dividend. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight you would give us a clearer vision of eternity and how our obedience affects that. That we will endure those things, Lord, as a soldier, knowing who it is we seek to follow, and not getting tangled up in that which makes us distracted. As an athlete seeking to be one, Paul would say that he buffets his body. He doesn't punch aimlessly. He's got focus and direction. But he competes according to the rules. And as a farmer that we actually do get the blessing of it, of partaking of that, Lord, which is the fruit. That we can then rejoice and say as Paul does, that which I first received I give to you. So Lord, for those who are struggling or whose hands have grown a little bit limp, Lord, or whose walk has gotten a little less firm, tonight rekindle and stir up that gift. Cause us to see how precious it is and to instill it in others that we know are going to be able to impart that on others as well. So Lord, we pray right now that you would give us, make us faithful to the callings you've placed on our life. In Jesus' name.